Hello and welcome to another Creative Weirdos Conversation, where I get to talk to old and new friends about creative and weird stuff. Today we have Joshua Cutchin coming back on for the second time and talking about his brand new novel. I've been loving this trend of some of my favorite, uh, I guess, Fordian or weirdo authors diving into the realm of fiction, and we really kind of dig deep on why fiction can communicate some of these ideas in a different way that seems to be a little bit more appropriate or sink in differently for different folks out there and Josh's new book, Them Old Ways Never Died, is a perfect example of this. For anyone familiar with Josh's previous work, there is tons of familiar themes and topics running through this beautiful story, but there's also a whole new um, kind of viewpoint on some of the things that Josh has talked about in a lot of his other work. So we get into all of that as well as his process and kind of what he took away from diving into or dipping his toe into the world of fiction. And I think you all are really going to enjoy this conversation so definitely go support josh and grab a copy of them old ways never died which is linked below as well as any of his other work they're all beautiful books and just enjoy this conversation thank you for hanging out and thank you for all the new listeners and the recent support if you want more stuff like this i have a patreon linked below and if you dig these conversations then go ahead and give a like and review and all of that good stuff that helps find more friends i'll talk to you all soon bye back i am super stoked to have you here um we're gonna jump right into talking about your new book if that's cool absolutely it's it's so much fun to catch up with you todd and uh i'm just i'm uh i'm, I'm happy to be here it's it's a different kind of feeling talking about and putting this out there as opposed yeah. to what i usually do um i was speaking with our mutual friend and uh my editor barbara fisher and I, and she said, yeah, it kind of feels like walking around naked. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of does, <laughs> you know, cause I didn't realize how much I was hiding behind, uh, references in my other work. But when you do this and it all sort of comes from you, it's kind of like, it's a very vulnerable place to be, but, uh, I'm easing into the press tour with people that I feel comfortable <laughs> around. So who better to start with than yourself? Well, that means a lot to me. Thank you, Josh. And <laughs> Does it feel weird not having to footnote? Like, do you feel like you're missing a part of the experience or was it liberating? Were you like, Ooh, I could, uh, I could get used to this. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not going to overshare this too much, but I do have an idea for a fiction project that involves in notes and footnotes sometime in the future. But you know, I, love we'll, that. We'll, we'll, I have a, an idea that could be cool if it works. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, people ask me, you know, was this harder or easier than what I normally do? And and the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> both. It's 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 easier because you're not trying to make sure you get quotations exact and you're not having to track down, you know, the place of publication of some obscure publisher that's out of out of business yeah. or something like that. Um but it's also harder because, you know, you're just staring at that blinking cursor on the screen <laughs> and uh and yeah, it, it just, you've got to find that or, you know, as we, I'm sure we'll talk about later, it has to find me. And sometimes, you know, 
sometimes there aren't a lot of transmissions coming in. But uh, but yeah, I, I will say that the pace of this uh, went went rather quickly. I mean, I took about two months to plot it out and about three months to write it. And um, with the exception of you know one or two chapters that got rewritten pretty substantively, uh, the rest of it was kind of you know as it is, um, you know, tightening up and editing and all those things as well. But uh, but yeah, it 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 the the flow of it was much uh, more consistent, I guess, than yeah. than writing my other stuff. Yeah. That's really interesting. And was there something, so I did, I've listened to your conversation with Barbara Fisher on six degrees of John Keel, and it's a wonderful conversation. I hope everybody goes and listens to. And one of the things that you mentioned that I did notice from just following your work is your interest in fiction has started a little while back before this book with uh, Jack Hunter's deep weird anthology. And I was just wondering what got you started down that road. I, I really like this one, um, magician esoteric thinker jason louve and he always says that if you want to really understand like big ritual magic or big magical concepts read fiction before you go to grimoires or esoteric things because the ideas are communicated in a way that's easier to grok a lot of the times and you can find more truisms through fiction in a lot of instances or a more direct communication of those ideas so was that kind of at play with what you're doing trying to communicate these ideas that you've been writing about for so long in a different way or I mean, yeah, yes and no. I mean, so yeah, I, I sort of didn't really notice this uptick in fiction interests that I've experienced until, you know, hindsight until probably after I started working on the novel. Um, because as you alluded to my essay in, in Dr. Hunter's deep weird does talk about cinematic techniques and what they could perhaps tell us about high strangest encounters. And then, you know, I have the collection of essays on fairy films that was released earlier this year. And now I've just gone full fiction and, and written a novel. So, yeah, it, there does seem to be a trend there. I, I suppose that, you know, the seeds of it were probably planted a ways back um, when I was, you know, sort of looking at ideas of co-creation theory, um, which is an idea that my, my, my mentor, Greg Bishop, has talked about a lot in terms of how much of these experiences are drawn from I don't know, the collective unconscious, uh, cultural conditioning, social, you know, concepts, our own biases. So that's sort of is an entry point for this. But also, you know, if you look at the work of, of Patrick Harper in, in Daemonic Reality, um, he talks about, you know, distinguishing the imaginal from the imaginary. And there does seem to be an interplay between these, you know, quote unquote, factual experiences and and the uh, the the things that we expect to see. I mean, you know, people have done these long form examinations of the origin of the image of the gray alien, or, you know, the, when was the first person who ever had their car shut off by a UFO and stuff like that. And almost always there's an antecedent in, in fiction. And I, I find that interesting. And I think it probably says something about the phenomena. <clears throat> and I don't think it says what a lot of skeptics would say it means. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, a lot of skeptics would say, Oh, well, it's just, people making it up. And, and I would posit as a lot of, you know, my sympathetic colleagues would, that there's a dialogue between yes. the fictional and the non-fictional um, totally. and where these things meet in that liminal zone is where these, these, these numinous encounters unfold. So I, I think that's, that's part of it too. You know, another big part of it, as I alluded to in my conversation with Barbara is that um, the act of, of creating um, is, is itself, 
kind of a paranormal encounter. Like, you know, we, we, we gloss over it, you know, but, yes. but, but as creatives, I think we could, we could lean into that a little bit more because you felt it. I'm sure everybody's felt it. It's like, where do these things come from? You know, yes. I have, I have no idea. Um, there was even, I read an interview earlier this year. I've mentioned this in a couple of other interviews, but there, I read an interview earlier this year, of Ray, ba- Ray Bradbury, who said that sometimes when he would wake up the first one in his household to wake up, he'd go downstairs and pick a random book that he had written off the shelf in his library and look in it and just cry because he had no idea where, where this stuff was coming from. He says, you know, it's not me. And that's fascinating. I don't know what it is, but it definitely feels that way when you're in the midst of a, of a, of a large scale creative endeavor. And so I wanted to have that paranormal experience since a lot of other paranormal experiences tend to elude me. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. And I couldn't agree more. I tell people all the time that I, I don't have through this podcast mainly, like we'll talk about people's paranormal experiences and I don't have any kind I'm I'm with you as far as the uh, paranormal kryptonite side of things goes. But every day I show up at the drawing table, I can feel time slip. I can feel that connection to that bigger space. And, and I really think there's something to that, uh, that connection that people don't give enough thought to, I guess. And I mean, I was thinking about this after I told you before we started reading or sorry, before we started reading, before we started talking that your book was the first fiction book I've read. That's not a comic book in so long. Like it's <laughs> right. been, and it's, Oh, kids books. I read lots of kids books. I have two young kids. So most of it is through their lens and I love it. There's right. beautiful kids books out there, mm-hmm. but it got me thinking about how important fiction is and we value it enough to where it's the main form of the way we teach our kids, like how we teach our kids morals, how they see the world, how they grow up. And even to like science and math, it's all taught through storytelling. And I- I'm thinking about how if we can trust fiction to essentially help raise our kids and teach them how to act in the world, why couldn't we trust it a little bit more in all these other aspects of life? That is a fascinating take. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, there, there's something about the power of of metaphor um, and the power of example that really transcends that sort of dry presentation. I mean, I, I was a little bit of a weird kid in, in some respects because once I started, you know, reading with some degree of fluency, I started picking the encyclopedia off the shelves <laughs> and just like reading the encyclopedia. So, but, but you're it. right. Like, but you're right. At that early developmental age, it's all about stories and it's, you know, uh, stories are the... <sighs> You know, they're sort of the the means by which we install the fundamental software in our yes, children. You know, yes, it's the operating absolutely. system. And, you know, if, if you thought it was bad updating your PC, just <laughs> see how long it takes to get an operating system into a into a four year old or a five year old. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. And I think there's something to that, that like even. I was just, it's funny because you were away into talking to one of my favorite artists recently, the ungoogleable Michelangelo, who you got to mm, talk to. Fascinating with. guy. Yeah. Dude, beautiful. And what you said a minute ago made me think of him because of how important metaphors are in the way he sees the world, because the bicameral mind and Julian Jaynes is such a base uh, way he kind of shapes his worldview. And language as metaphor is kind of what Jane says creates consciousness in a lot of ways or the consciousness that we experience, which is such a fascinating thing to think about when I'm thinking about how my kids progress and it goes from 
me kind of using metaphor to explain different things to them. And now he's coming to me with these metaphors and he is making his own metaphors with the way he's, he's experiencing the world. And it's all based on his fictional intake. Like right now he just got super into super Mario brothers for the first time. Mm -hmm. And he, he hasn't seen the movie. He's like, he's still, he's very cautious about things. He's like, dad, that's PG. I don't know if I can handle it yet. He's still a G kid. He's six. And I'm like, let's watch it. And he's like, let's watch the trailer. I'll let you know. But the way that these these uh, different fictions and mythologies have influenced his view of the world just makes me think about how, again, important fiction is. Because, And even like I was thinking about with how he's growing up, six was where I remember my parents being like, you can't watch this. Or like Beavis and Butthead came out and they're like, no, no, no. You can watch The Simpsons, but no Beavis and Butthead. And like, <laughs> there was these like acknowledgments that these stories and these silly things that people tried to say weren't important, like cartoons, actually had a big real world effect, even though they wouldn't say that. They they wouldn't let you watch it because right. they knew it would affect how you you know act and behave in the world. But I, I think there's something really there. And I love seeing people like yourself transition from that nonfiction to the fiction and kind of lean into those experiences experience and talk about creativity in a way that I haven't really heard a lot of people talk about outside of our little circle. I think that's important. And did you find the way you write, like, were you kind of um, experiencing the writing differently as well, if that makes sense? Yes. Um, There's so much effort put into, in my nonfiction output, just getting the facts straight and, and, and being sort of direct and like getting all the pertinence on the page, um, that there isn't really a lot of room to breathe. Uh, yeah. and it was, it was nice to be forced to examine the qualitative aspect of things, if that makes any sense. Um, so, you know, I, I have this, <laughs> this recurring joke that, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to write another novel. Um, so I, I, there were some parts here and there where I do indulge a little bit and it's like, no, dang it. You're going to hear how these leaves look. I'm going to tell you exactly <laughs> how these leaves look and I'm going to indulge and be a little bit eloquent. And, but, um, it was, it was, I, I've, I've experienced some, some interesting things when putting together my nonfiction output. Um, a lot of like, you know, library angel sort of things where you just happen to be in the right section of the library and happen across a book that blows apart your entire thesis in a good way, you know? Um, but, uh, with this, it was all all that, all those experiences that I I would have writing something like ecology of souls, even though they were interesting in that regard, um, they felt a little bit more superficial and and, and in writing this, it was more like, no, you're, you're, I feel like I was going a level deeper into like the substrata of what it means to be human and exist. And I, I'm not saying that like to put my, to put this book on a pedestal and say that it's some sort of paragon of literature, but I'm just saying like to, 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 to qualitatively examine some of the emotions and feelings and things, it feels like you're, you're tapping into something a little bit more universal than, you know, some of the, citing reports and stuff that I would get into otherwise. Um, so yeah, there was definitely, definitely some of that going on. Um, and, uh, you know, there, I I wouldn't go so far as to say that I ever had a, um, I ever had an Alan Moore and John Constantine Mm -hmm. moment, you know, where, Mm -hmm. where the characters leap off the page, but, um, there's a character in the book who, um, 
works at a pharmacy and there was a, a pharmacy that I go to and there was a character that looked very much like this or rather an, a pharmacist that looked very much like this character. Um, and, uh, you know, so the way that they were, the clothes that they were wearing sort of inspired a moment later in the book. But, um, it was that moment where it sort of re-enchanted my daily life a little bit more. Cause it's like, Oh, was, was that Bora that I just, <laughs> that I just met, you know? Um, yeah. Um, so it was, it was, it's, you know, I haven't been back there to that particular pharmacy to see if she still works there. It'll be interesting <laughs> to see if, see if she does or, or not. Yes. But, um, but yeah, it's, so there, there is sort of that quality where it makes you realize how, um, magical the mundane can be when you start to actually stand back and examine it and try to pull apart what makes it interesting in the first place or you know this that, that act of re-enchantment yeah yeah no absolutely that's beautiful and i i think that's like a great way to sum up my general thoughts of creativity and living a more creative life in general is it's a way to re-imbue your world with magic. Like you can definitely use it. It makes me think of another Grant Morrison story that I absolutely love where right before one of his uh, biggest books is all-star Superman. He pretty much like wrote mm-hmm. the definitive yeah. Superman comic. It's just the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And before that he has this encounter with Superman. He's at a comic convention and he's walking down the street and he sees somebody that is in a full superman outfit but not only is he dressed like superman but he is superman like he's standing in this pose he's built to the nines he is a hundred percent like it's uh, grant morrison and another comic writer and they look at each other and they're like we have to go talk to that guy that is superman and i'm about to write this giant superman story i don't know where i'm going with it and he goes over and he has this conversation with superman as if like they never break kayfabe they never acknowledge that it's not superman the whole thing is like an interview with superman and then he bases essentially that's like the 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 seed that germinates into all-star superman and he'll talk about it as an encounter with a real fictional character and i think that's so beautiful because like whether it's a cloud that is mistaken for a ufo or a million other things it doesn't matter about what the physical thing is in the world it's the interaction and the results of that interaction and how you can incorporate that into how you live and yeah that's super yeah i mean super cool yeah, to think about I'm, I'm all about breaking down that that distinction um as, as you know you mentioned the conversation that i had with michelangelo we, we talk about you know pareidolia for a while um or we talked about it and um and uh, it's one of those things where like, okay, well, yes, that is just a cloud that happens to look like a face, but maybe similar things were the inspiration for deities over the years. Maybe this is the way that deities decide to interact with us. Like just sit in that undecided middle zone where it could be just a cloud and it could be something yes. more, you know, something more. <laughs> and, and you know, dare I say, engage with the face in the cloud and see yes. what happens, you know? Totally. You know, especially, especially if it's a private moment, like you're going to look stupid to yourself, you know? <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, That reminds me actually of something that someone we all, uh, me, you, and the ungoogleable appreciate Terrence McKenna brought up where he was saying in that exact same instance, and I don't think it was a face in a cloud, but it was something, a shape in a cloud. He's like, sit there and think about all the things that have to happen for that face to appear that way. Not only like in the physical world, like what it takes for that cloud to be made, what it takes for the atmosphere to be made, for that cloud to be held. And like, he breaks it all down that way. And then he goes into how we see. He's like, think about how your eyes work to perceive that cloud. And it's like, if you actually can stop and sit in those types of big mysteries, let's say, 
once a month, you know, you're going to kind of feel better and like feel like a more connected human being. And that's uh, something I think everybody can benefit from. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the reason that I sort of tend to push back against. It's why I've been a little bit perhaps misguided to a degree. I'm, I'm willing to admit that now, but I've, I've sort of championed against materialism because in its most reductive form, it strips us a lot of that. And I think that mm-hmm. sort of sense of wonder is, is, you know, humanity's birthright. Yes. Um, to, and, you know, I'm not saying that any of this stuff is real in the same way that this computer is real or, or that you and I are real. But um, I dare say that, engaging with these things on that level can at least make at least make life a little bit more interesting and maybe it yeah. make it a little bit easier and maybe have, help you find some meaning you know i totally. mean help you you know that's that's the one of the big religious questions like even if your religion isn't real in that sense if it imparts meaning then does it matter if it is or not you know if it imparts yes. meaning to your life and helps you be a better person and more compassionate person and help the world become a better place then kind of at that point who cares if it's exactly. <laughs> if it's real or not you know yeah uh, uh, mitch horowitz who's one of my favorite thinkers he's you know he's a satanist and he's very open about these things but he's like the kindest most nicest giving open person you'll ever meet and he's his whole rap about this stuff is that a person's ideas thoughts religious views where it all comes down to how it makes you act in the real world if you can take that system and it makes you a kinder person in the world that's the end result. And that's the only thing we can really judge these things on. And that's always been something that I felt like, you know, I was brought up Catholic with a lot of disconnect there where there was much, uh, mm. much being said to, about being open and gentle and a lot of uh, mean things happening um, right. at the same time by those people. So like there's, I think it's something that you can find in a million different ways and it almost doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where those revelations come from. It matters that they happen. It matters that, that, uh, that, that good, that idea of connection comes through and it makes you live as a more open kind person. You know what I mean? Like whether yeah, you find that through, <clears throat> through a million different ways, I think it's just about getting there and kind of like the whole, it's so funny because the more that like what you were just saying about pareidolia and like materialism kind of reducing these phenomenon, right? Like you can use materialism to connect with that same idea. If you just flip, it's all a right. lens. It's all how you look at it. like my kid. And I may have talked to you about this. I don't know. I haven't talked about this in a while. But my kid really likes this podcast called the big fib. And it's all about like, they have an expert and a liar on. So the expert will be like an eye, an optologist or whatever you call that. eye specialist <laughs> ophthalmologist. Is that it? Um, but it'll be like, <laughs> the scientist and then it'll be somebody pretending to be the scientist and they did one on vision and the one that is the scientist she's talking about how our eyes take this light and a chemical uh, reaction happens to change it into this thing our brains can understand and it sounds so out there that the kid identifies her as the fibber because the way our eyes actually work connected to our brains sounds like magic Mm -hmm. to a six-year-old when the guy making up the stuff sounded more real because it was a lot more basic and like so Mm -hmm. that materialism can offer an access point if you can look at it right you know what i mean yeah yeah, well you know i i'm I'm sure that some people have listened to me on other programs and and thought that i was antagonistic towards atheists and I'm, i'm not really i mean there's there's a there's a gulf of wonder between the Sagans and the Arthur C. Clarks and, and sort of the new atheism that popped up in the late nineties and the early two thousands, which was 
at times could flirt with nihilism, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And so it's, it's all about, you know, it's not about denying any of these scientific advancements. It's, it's about seeing the intrinsic wonder that we take for granted. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I would even argue that there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a pathway back to, there's always a pathway back to an unanswerable question, even in those models too. You know, it's like, you know, well, yes. we know how gravity works, but like you can keep on asking why until, you know, keep on asking why like a six year old, right. Yes, <laughs> until, yes, exactly. until you get back to, until you get back to something that's like, that's just the way reality is set up and no one really has an answer for no a answer. lot, you know, why that is. So uh, yeah, I, I think that, I think that um, there's a, a thoughtful introspective way to do that and to not do that. Just like anything, I suppose. Absolutely. This has been on my mind so much recently because actually of Mitch Horowitz's new book that I read recently and got to uh, have a conversation with him uh, uh, called Modern Occultism. And, you know, he talks about, and he's not the first to identify this schism, but he talks about how the West has this schism in spirituality and he's using spirituality in the context of everything that's outside of materialism. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have the schism because of the Western materialism and, overall capitalism and the way capitalism interacts with these things and promotes materialism in a very specific Mm -hmm. way. But that schism also did this thing that I think is going to be a great uh, way to lead us back into a conversation about your book. It made it so that in the West, the safest place for these ideas that we're talking about right now and these out there ideas was fiction. The only place you could find, you know, paranormal things or things that were supernatural or even spiritual was it all got relegated into this point of fiction. And it it was okay to talk about these things if you're talking about them in the realms of comic books or movies or, you know, the only other place really academically would be like in religious contexts in certain areas. But even that was very like you know hit or miss depending on the time period so we took all of these things that like we were just saying are these inherent things that are human this like intrinsic um uh, ability to want to interact with mystery and we relegated them to fiction which almost made fiction a whole different thing in a certain way and i'd love to hear your thoughts on on that and kind of you know where fiction yeah. took over <laughs> yeah i mean don't get me wrong i i have my my love of fiction that is, you know, adult in the sense that like, you know, a Scorsese film might be or something along those lines that seems all seems very plausible and whatnot. But when I, but when I really get down to it, like if, if fiction doesn't include some element of the fantastic, I don't know how, how much it really resonates with me. I mean, it can, you know, again, one of my favorite films ever is this italian film uh, cinema paradiso and there's nothing really fantastic in that it's just a story about human beings and that's that's lovely and wonderful but like i uh it's it's like eating a good salad versus <laughs> eating eating you know a, a pizza or something you know it's like yes this is really good and i appreciate it and it definitely needs to be in my diet and it's lovely on its own but like it's it's not necessarily what i am inclined to go for when i look at a menu um so yeah i i think it's but but I think that it's it's if if I could dare propose this, not only did was was where these topics pushed into fiction, but I think that these topics have an affinity for fiction, you know, in that very George P. Hansen trickster in the paranormal way. They like kind of being in these areas where they can have plausible deniability yes, about their yes. their existence and and you know whether or not they're really a thing at all. Um, 
so I, I would suggest, you know, for my own worldview that there is almost a, um, a super positioned meta intelligence that's sort of pushing these topics to that realm because, you know, because it's, it's that old thing from the Herbert Shermer abduction in, uh, in Nebraska. We want you to believe in us, but not too yes, much, not you know? Too much. Um, and that's, that's exactly what fiction helps to do is it helps to insert that level of, of ridicule and ridiculousness. And that's certainly what the, the high strangeness quality that often so often uh, appears in these encounters seems to do as well as it injects this absurdity that makes so it true. sort of, you know, again, plausible deniability, I think yes. is the best way to, <laughs> is the best way to put it. Um, yeah. It also makes me think about how much fiction has the ability to move culture faster than like, you know, whether it's science or like fiction and mythology moves culture seems to be more than anything else. And it's so funny. That idea was exactly where I was hoping you'd go. One of my favorite comic books is by Grant Morrison. It's essentially that idea that the superheroes existed as real corporeal people in the same world, same timeline as all of us. And they were putting out all of these very mundane um whether it's bank robberies or stopping a train from, you know, flipping over these kind of golden age, like very boring kind of day-to-day mundane problems. And then the problems started getting bigger and the, and the, the villains got bigger. And the only way that they could actually save the world, they realized was to insert themselves into the mythology because mm. the only way to change people's hearts is to change the stories they're reading. So the comic book characters, the superheroes, like put themselves into the 2D world from the 3D world to change the 3D world. And I was like, that is so beautiful. And that seems like there's something like, like he intuited something there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And and it puts me in the mindset. I can't remember who discussed this. It might've been Dr. Jeffrey Kripal and it might've been Whitley Strieber and it might've been them in dialogue with each other in the supernatural, but one or either or both of them discussed the need for better, more aspirational fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. And look, I, I, I love a dark ending as much as anybody, um, but there has become this um, equivalence or perceived equivalence of serious and, you know, mature with being dark and depressing. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think that that with the sort of rise of a lot of these sort of downer media i guess you know um i i I wonder if i wonder if that hasn't had an influence on on culture as well i mean like you know i i love the the george rr martin stuff as much as anybody and you know i read all the books and kept up with you know game of thrones when it was on tv but like that's a nasty world yeah and you can see the way that we discuss politics now and again maybe it was always this way we just see it now but like that's the way that we frame politics now is within that westeros sort of model (laughs) and i kind of i kind of i kind of wonder again it was probably always like this but but um but i kind of wonder if if that sort of public perception isn't having sort of a ref, is, isn't being reflected in reality in some sense. hundred percent. hundred percent. I, I think actually, uh, Jason Louv, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, he mentioned this on a podcast. I listened to him, uh, on recently 
that think about the fact that what we're communicating on right now, these computers that are most of our ties to jobs and not only our Mm -hmm. jobs, but the way we interact with friends and loved ones before the internet, it was mainly used for doom. And it was mainly used for these first person, (laughs) like Wolfenstein 3d, all of that energy was transferred (laughs) to how we interact on social media and every, like everybody's still playing doom. It's just that we're connected and we're like doing it through social media. I think the way that we transfer these cultural ideas to different mediums is definitely there you know and yeah you know that's interesting too though like i was thinking you said that about friends and and i was thinking about like all the courtesy copies of them old ways never die that i've sent out and how they are literally all around the country and don't get me wrong i i really have appreciated the find your tribe version of of reality that we're in because i have some friends that are my closest friends and they are countries and states away right but there is something to be said for uh, finding common ground with people in your immediate lived space as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I, I know, you know, just a handful of neighbors names, um, but we're not really, we're not hanging out and we're not, you know, I, I see them on the street and I'm like, Oh, I gotta go take the long way around. So I don't have to stop by so-and-so. So like, and, and that's not, I, I realize that that's not healthy. And I, I kind of wish that I had it in me um, to be forced into those situations and to make friends with people that I wouldn't normally spend time with, like we might have in, in, in the past. So I know that some people will say, oh, it sounds like Josh is hearkening back to some sort of traditionalism or something like that. But I think that as with everything, there's a balance that's needed. And I think yes. that, that we could all do for, for a little bit more of that balance, just as someone who has no... Um, outside contact might find very positive kinship reaching across mm-hmm. the internet to people in other places. I think a lot of us um, have more potential to have friends in our immediate community and just overlook that because we find people who resonate with us more online. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm blessed in the sense that, you know, being a, being a musician and working with people in bands, like you're sort of forced into those, <laughs> those, you yes. know, meet space bonds. So, uh-huh. so to speak, um, but yeah, I, I think that that a balance in that regard might be might be super useful, or might I it might be agree. it might be a pathway towards compassion that I see so lacking in you know twenty twenty three. And it's a it's a compassionate pathway towards fixing a lot of stuff in a lot of different ways. It makes me think of uh, Douglas Rushkoff is one of my favorite thinkers, media uh, analyzers, writers, whatever you want to call them. But he has this whole rap about how if and he's saying exactly what you're saying that one of the big things we need to do is reinvest in local community and he's talking about it through a million different lenses but one thing he always says is you know we talk about all of these uh, all the waste that's going on and supporting these weird parts of capitalism when we can start just by doing what you said if you need a drill instead of going to home De- you have to hang a picture <laughs> yeah. right yeah instead of going to home yes. depot buying a $40 drill that's going to be used once and then sit until it's broken when you need to use, go knock on your neighbor's door and say, Hey, do you have a drill I could borrow? And you know what? Maybe that neighbor's a carpenter and he'll be like, Hey, you know what? I'll come over. I'll help you hang this picture, hang it for you. Right. And then maybe his kid needs help in English and he knows you're a writer now. And it makes these communal connections that it keeps 
well, a lot of the problems with economies right now is all the money gets sucked out of communities and goes the money that we spend doesn't right. isn't circular. This is a way to bypass money and give the value back to the human interaction and that connection of, hey, this person's good at this. I'm good at this. Let's hang out for a minute. And it's not that you have to stop every time you see them right. and be best friends. It's that you're 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 helping each other out and that's enough of a connection. And I know that right. it's not always that clean and like that sounds really good in a lot of ways. <laughs> But, yeah. like, but yeah, I think I a mean, little bit more of that thinking could go a long way in solving more than just, you know, basic problems. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. And I want to make this abundantly clear for anyone that's listening. Um, you know, a lot of us deal with social anxiety. And in this sense, I definitely am that person um, because, mm-hmm. you know, being here in in <laughs> in the American Southeast, um, you know, I'm not into football and I'm the kind of guy who measures things like three times cuts once and it's still wrong. So like all of the, you know, the, all of the bare chested two fisted quote unquote manly things that I'm supposed to be able to do. I, I don't. So I totally get, um, that sort of level of social anxiety. And I say all that to say that I don't practice what I preach in this regard, but you know, this conversation sort of inspiring. Maybe I'll sort of double down on that a little bit more <laughs> and try to be more open about it. Cause I, I, I do think that I don't know if it's the reason that we see so much fracturing, but it certainly hasn't helped. Um, yeah. Our current, I think our current predicament. I think it's like everything else. There's a million reasons for the fractioning and you're never going to address them all. So if we can pick out and maybe this part isn't the one for you if you have social anxiety but there's a million other ones that you can kind of pick and choose from right because and and i think you well before i go here the one other thing that i wanted to bring up that this made me think of was we were just talking about um essentially belief structures and the way that they cause you to interact in the world and i think one of the best ways you can judge a person's character and this is harder than ever is not by them themselves but by the people in their lives and how the people in their lives and that are around them react about them and that gets weird in a day of social media and everything else but like if you really want to know somebody talk to their significant others talk to their kids talk to their spouses their like that's how you know people and their their true character in a certain way i mean absolutely you know people people make mistakes (laughs) people (laughs) people say dumb things that they don't mean to say people um act without knowing how their actions might be interpreted. And of course, you know, we should all learn from those moments, but generally if you can find someone who has spent a good amount of time around someone and they, there's something that I say from time to time, but you know, they, they know their heart, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's always so different. True. You know, you, you hear these stories about, you know, every time there's a serial killer all the neighbors are like, wow, he was so nice. You know, who knew? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> like it's it's you can't always say that um but there there definitely is there definitely is something to that to like sort of going again just like with the ufo topic um going to the witnesses themselves and asking them their impressions i think is something that really can be helpful yeah totally so to kind of again steer it back towards this wonderful book that you wrote you uh there are a million different causes to that societal fracturing, I think. And one of them is the weird way that people interact with fiction in general. Like we were just talking about something like game of Thrones and the universality of like how many people watch that and how it affected people's worldviews. And I don't know how many cultural things like that 
are around anymore or like have those cultural cohesive moments. But what's really interesting to me, and I, I always frame that when it comes out, it sounds like it's always framed in a negative thing. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily a complete negative because one of the things that it allows in this fracturing that I think will eventually be a rebuilding is people like yourself to find a niche to add to this narrative. Like the fact that them old ways can exist out there and like have the, have an impact in that larger cultural mythology, even if it's in a very small segment of the culture, I think matters. And I'm really excited to see folks like yourself put your hat in the fictional ring and kind of, uh, you know, I've said a million times on this podcast, I think we're all just the stories that we read and the stories that the society reads. So this means something that you're putting your hat in that ring to, to offer this story. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to put that out there and see, uh, use that as a way to almost maybe you could frame a little bit of what this book's about because the, the topics in there are something that I think everyone listening and anyone that's ever listened to or read your stuff is going to really like, but they hit in a very different way. Like, I don't think any of the topics are going to surprise people what's in here. Like we talked right, about, right. like they're very Joshua Cutchin, but the way that they're <laughs> digested is completely different for me. So uh, maybe we can use that as a little way to start talking about a little bit about what the book's about here. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. Like, so sort of what you're alluding to is is the death of the gatekeeper, which, you know, has had a yeah. profound impact on like the music industry and the art industry. And, you know, it's it's been a double-edged sword because, you know, when you, I, I dare say that when people make it, quote unquote, doing a creative endeavor, they don't make it as big as they used to, but more people are making it <laughs> to yes. some degree, yes. you know, lesser degree. So, yeah, and that was sort of, um, you know, that was sort of, part of why I, I self-published, you know, I self-published Ecology of Souls and before that where the footprints in was self-published with Timothy Drinner. And, um, you know, I, I still will say an aspiring author should try to go to a publisher if it's their first book, because there is something nice about the gatekeepers. If I can say maybe, maybe it's their <laughs> only redeeming feature, right? Maybe it's the only yeah. thing about gatekeeping, but, um, in that sense of media gatekeeping, it is, sort of the third party endorsement that, Hey, this is, this is worth, you know, giving your attention to. So I, I do think that there's something to be said about, you know, engaging with a traditional publisher in that regard. But for me, you know, I just, ecology and this were so personal um, to me, this, this even more so um, that I wanted to, I wanted to sort of, I didn't want a bunch of meddling, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. the, especially with, with fictional paperbacks, like the more words you put on the page, the less profit you get. And that's sort of what the big publishers are all motivated by. So I'm not sure that them old ways never died would exist in its current word count. Um, otherwise. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I sort of, I wanted to have this experience of having that, um, interaction, that paranormal interaction that we sort of alluded to where your character's, take on a life of their own and will and won't let you do things with them. Um, and I did experience that to a degree. And interestingly enough, um, it happened in on the cusp between falling asleep and, and being awake, um, which was really, really obnoxious for, a, <laughs> for you know, for, about, for a couple of months there, it was, you know, I would, I would start to fall asleep and I'd have to like wake up and, you know, type something in my phone or write something down because, you know, if you don't do that, you're going to lose it. Um, Absolutely. but, uh, I wanted to experience that and I, I did experience that. And it's really interesting. You know, I mentioned that uh, there was a chunk of the book that needed to be rewritten. And as I rewrote it, 
when I was when I was finished with it, it wasn't that, oh, I rewrote this and it's better. It was, oh, the transmission was garbled the first time it came through. <laughs> like this is the way it is the way it was always supposed to be. That was the sense that I got. And you know, it's to a certain degree, it is a little bit of a supernatural paranormal experience on demand. Um so uh that was sort of the goals for it. But also, um, you know, I I had never really tried anything fictional because I didn't know if I could pull it off to the degree to the level that I wanted to. So like the idea of me writing, you know, the equivalent of a, of a pulp story <laughs> that's all surface level and about, you know, a monster attacking someone or something like, yes, I, 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 I could have done that, but um, I wanted to make sure that there was something going on underneath the hood, so to speak. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that, especially I see this in horror more than I do anywhere else nowadays where the, you know, there is that use of metaphor to say like, well, you know, yes, the person's being attacked by, you know, they're being possessed by a demon, but it's also a metaphor for this or that or the other thing, you know? So, so I, I, I sort of wanted to see if I could layer that and apply it in the same way. And uh, I think, you know, having read them old ways, never died, you probably see exactly what the antagonists really are <laughs> in the yes. story. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, so I wanted to, to tie that in there. Um, and, you know, th there's um, the, the whole Shakespeare and love thing where you uh, you sort of write about what's in your life and what you know. And I couldn't ever really think of a good way to do that. But really, I mean, that that became the best way to do it um, was to write about the things that I know, which, of course, are <laughs> um, music and uh you know supernatural folklore and um you know recovery because i uh yesterday was actually the three-year mark it was also the release date of them will never ways never die but it was the three-year mark of my sobriety so um i thought that there was a story that could be told there that would incorporate a lot of these experiences with a degree of authenticity which was also really important to me um to each of these separate things so uh while there have been other um stories that feature the antagonists and yes i'm being vague in that regard but while there have been other bits of fiction here and there that have featured the antagonists of this story um you know they always sort of play fast and loose with the folklore and whatnot and play fast and loose with the way that the supernatural really tends to behave and i really wanted to be authentic to that as authentic to that as i am to these more mundane real life experiences that i've had as well yeah no, that comes across so well. And that layering of ideas is 100% there. And that like in that underlying emotional motivation that goes throughout the book is really beautiful and something that I think um, kind of comes across and makes the paranormal topics hit a little bit different. Like we talk a lot about how the paranormal stuff is it's a reflection. It's not the thing itself. It's the way that people react around it right. and putting that in a fictional space and having the characters like it's a small cast of characters and seeing the way each of them interact with these different events throughout the book is very telling. And the, it, it tells the story in a different way. That was really cool to see. And we, I love this idea of the characters leading themselves and wanting to be talked. But um, right now I'm, 
I'm retrans or I'm transcribing the Grant Morrison disinfocon talk where he tells the story of his alien abduction and writing the invisibles. And when he interacts with the aliens, uh, the entities, the silver blobs for the first time and asks them why he why they're there, he's they're like, We're giving you stuff to put in your stories. This is us <laughs> saying you have to put this here. Yeah. And same thing with the uh, Neil Gaiman Corazon uh, encounter. He says essentially I'm here because you have to bring me back and put me back into the story and the Neil game. So like Neil Gaiman wasn't planning on ending the story with that character, but then he did. And he was like, Oh no, that's the way, just like you were saying with the rewrites, that's how it was always supposed to be. He just had to have that interaction. And that's the thing that I wanted to ask you about kind of this, uh, showing up to that idea space or like showing up to find, or the, the way that I guess channeling these ideas for lack of a better word. Right does it make you think about time at all? Has it made you think about the way that time interacts with creativity and the way that like we seem to pool ideas from the future and the past at the same time I've noticed when working on things. It's something that like, I don't know why that kept coming up while I was reading the book, but I was just kind of, we talked briefly about time and you're, I believe you said it was uh, someone else's thing to cover at at that point when we (laughs) talked last. Um, (laughs) But I was wondering if you thought anything more after having this uh, experience writing the book as, as far as creativity and precognition like that eric wargo's book on precognitive precognitive creative acts and everything and how it's different uh bisections of time you know i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that after doing this no i mean absolutely um yeah it's, it's kind of funny um something i didn't intend to be in the book but that just sort of came out in one of the early chapters was when I know I'm being coy folks. So just give me some credit (laughs) here. But when the leader of the antagonists seems to, it seems to possess a knowledge of just everything that's happened. You know, there does seem to be this positioning outside of time. And there are a couple of illusions, uh, a couple of illusions in the book um, that uh, make it very apparent that the, uh, the supernatural forces are acting with complete knowledge of what has and will happen. Um, but yeah, that, that definitely has occurred to me that um, it wasn't necessarily a transmission that got garbled, but it was this thing has already existed in the future and it's pulling me towards that, um, yeah. you know, which is interesting when you get it right, but is even more interesting when you get it wrong, <laughs> you know, because it's like, <laughs> what if, yeah, what is that when, uh, well, you know, that, you know, you see this in fiction and, and you know film and books all the time it's like oh if they just done this it would have been so much better like what what is that is that the fact that there was some sort of interfere interference along the way in that retrocausal loop or what i don't know but um but yeah i i definitely thought of that and that's something else that uh you know in our work on the ufology tarot greg bishop talked about too is this idea that oh you know the cards are already made it's just a matter of us bringing them into into existence bringing them into reality yeah Yes. Do you think that those things are meant for certain people? Like, you know, those cards are made. So only RPG RPG is going to be able to pull them back from the idea sphere. I've been wondering about that. Like, do people have ideas? Do ideas have people? Are is it right place, right time? Is like and I think so there's a musician I love and he always said like he was very prolific, made like I want to say 30 albums before he was 25 or something like that. And he always said the reason was because his belief on creativity is you have X amount. And once that's gone, it's gone. And then you got the rest of your <laughs> life. And I, you know, I never really subscribed to that, but it was one of the first things I listened to people talk about where I'm like, time has a factor in here. Like it's, it's definitely yeah. like, 
there yeah. seems to be. But yeah, do you think that these ideas are? Uh, it's this might be a little weirder, but I love the thought experiment of babies choosing their parents like you know the baby the soul <laughs> right. whatever you yep, want to yep. say like you hear those stories yeah 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 they come to this earth to uh have a certain experience but the parent chooses the baby at the same time that the parent needed that experience and the baby needed right. that experience and they find each other and i've been kind of thinking about ideas as something similar and have you thought about that at all as far as where these things if they're meant for you <laughs> yeah well you know that was sort of that sort of is tied into what we were talking about like uh, the ideas having people thing that's that's something that i i suspected for a long time, but I hadn't experienced firsthand, and this allowed me to experience first it firsthand. As far as whether or not only Joshua Cutchin could have written "Them Old Ways Never Died," or only Miguel Romero could have made those ufology tarot cards, that's that's a little bit too like chosen one. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, no, you know, prophetic. I mean, I, what what I would suspect is that there are people who have the right confluence of experience and aptitude that allow for these ideas to come through if that makes any sense mm -hmm. um 100%. it's sort of like you know it's sort of like a a a, a, a field with a fertile field versus a barren field. You know what I mean? Yeah, like this, yeah. this, this field has been deprived of nutrients. You're never going to grow a soybean crop here or whatever, but you know, Oh, this has all the right conditions and the sunlight is just perfect. And the, you know, the, the weather here and this climate is just spot on for it's, it's like optimal growing ground. So like, I don't think that it's, I don't think if I ascribe to the ideas of people thing, I can't say that it was just me. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. It's it's an idea that was sort of floating out around there. Um, and who knows, like maybe it, maybe it would have never taken root or maybe it would have taken root with someone else. I don't know. Um, but yeah. they're, they're definitely, but I say all that to say that there definitely is the sense that a big chunk of this is just not me. <laughs> like, I don't know where it came <laughs> from, but it's just not me. Um, you know, I, I would say that the, like the, the granular stuff is me. So like, you know, yes. describe, describing the leaves, <laughs> so yeah. that's my example. Like, you know, some of, some of the specific language choices are me, but like the broad strokes and how it all fits together is, is not me. That's um, so yeah. cool. The the purple prose is some of my favorite parts of it. Like they're they're really beautiful and it flows really nicely. So hey, that was the, the most that disappointing. Are you are great. <laughs> that was the most disappointing thing is because you know I got this master's in music and then I ended up getting a master's in journalism and like I still remember to this day like one of my my first week of classes like I go to write something and they're like, yeah you can't write it like that. I'm like what's what's wrong with this? And they're like it's it's what we call purple prose and I'm like. Oh, but this is this is what writing is. <laughs> like, why? Nope, why? Nope, no, totally. So, I yeah. first heard that term as somebody using it negatively to describe some of Alan Moore's work that it was too much purple prose going on, and I'm like, but that's the stuff I love about the like I love all those words and like the that phrasing and there's so one of the things that I've chased my whole life is that feeling where you read something or you listen to a song or you uh you watch a tv show or a movie and you get goosebumps and there's like that moment in the thing and it just gives you goosebumps and it's like a physical manifestation of that really good feeling inside right and like that's been one of my favorite like i my whole life goal is kind of to cause that for other people and to cause it in myself and it's kind of chase that feeling and i think there's something to that sitting in those things like purple prose that allow for that to happen like i think if people if it's too direct if there's not that kind of metaphoric language and stuff it's for me that's what does it for me if that makes sense so, yeah. yeah i mean it's again like so much i mean i'm sure that you resonate with this too like the 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 
thing that I, the biggest misstep that I see creatives do. And again, this isn't to say that Josh is always right or that Josh gets everything right. But like, if I have one bit of advice, it's just to do something that you would want to read or see or experience. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, I, I run into these people from time to time who are chasing trends and it's like, you can, you can use that as like, you can use that as garnish you know on what you're doing but but like it's got to be something that you would want to read or see uh, at the totally. end of the day and there's there's a level of authenticity to doing that that i don't think you can you can't you can fake you know what i mean and, and like i mean i'm a huge like david lynch fan and the idea of following the idea like the idea is everything whether it's success or a failure doesn't matter you know socially it's all about following that idea to through to the end and like mm-hmm. sometimes there are certain ways you can set yourself up to find the deeper ideas. You know, he uses the fishing metaphor. If you want to catch a big fish, you got to go deep. You got to think deep. And that's where the big ideas yeah. are. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is, has this changed your kind of writing ritual? I think a lot about like that book war of art with things like this, where, you know, there's this kind of, liminal state that the creative has to get to proper to properly interact with the demonic surface of a blank screen right like there's this right you have to have you have to have structure but you have to have enough looseness to allow yourself you have to be able to show up at the drawing table or at the computer every day but you also have to allow enough flexibility to you know uh, indulge in a book or go for a walk or like have this kind of liminal thing between structure and anti-structure seems to be where the imagination plays and has writing the fiction changed the way that you try and show up at this writing space or do you think it's going to influence your non-fiction writing in the future well i mean there's there's something that that uh i sort of always suspected but didn't quite become concretized until i i, I started writing them old ways never died which is advice from my wife. And she, you know, I would, I would talk about what everything I had to do and how much more I had to do and this and that and the other. And she was always just like, just get something on the page, just put something down. She's like going back and fixing it is the easy part, but getting the beginning, the big broadest strokes on the page is just, that's, that's what you've got to do. Just do it. Totally. Um, so, you know, that's not, that's not really a glamorous approach, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, that, that is kind of like the, uh, that's the that's the elbow grease part of it i guess um but there is something to that and you know that's sort of my advice when people ask me for advice on writing nowadays i'm like just just put it down and you can go back and fix it later you can go back and take it out later like any number of things but like these these things you know approach it like a approach it like a sculptor as opposed to somebody trying to do a, a beautiful first pass like you've just sort of got to get the basic shape and it's, it's like um someone asked me one time you know about how i chose topics for my nonfiction books and i'm like well i mean you know it's, it's it is kind of like you know being a, a wood carver or a woodcutter or something like there are some blocks of wood that are never going to be an owl you know yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. to you have you have to you have to look at it and say i think there's an owl in there Mm-hmm. And you have to sort of coax it out. Um, but, you know, you're not going to do that with a plank of plywood or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you've got to sort of see the thing in there before you can coax it out. And then when you do, it's going to be rough and chunky and it's not going to have the detail and it's not going to be attractive, but it's going to it's going to at least have the right shape to it. And then yeah. you can sort of go back and keep on refining that as you as you get closer um, to what you want, what you envision, Absolutely. what you see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. When that refining stage happens and the editing stage is going on for you is that like 
are you enjoying that as much as putting that like when you really hit something and you put it down for the first time like can you find that same amount of enjoyment in the editing phase uh sometimes <laughs> you know it's <laughs> it's it's that sort of thing where like the the biggest thing about what i have discovered writing longer books and we can talk about the length of this at some point if you want to because we had some had a little bit of a discussion about that before we started but um the the biggest detraction when writing longer books it's not that i don't think people will read them i think that you know i mean look at stephen king is still putting out these like gigantic doorstops and you oh know, yeah i think it is like four over four hundred thousand words it's enormous um wow. the worst thing about the worst thing about writing long <laughs> works is is that editing stage because in the amount of time that it takes you to proofread your book once somebody else can proofread their book that's a third as long three times you know it's just basic yes. <laughs> basic logic and um you know i i i think that um i think i suspect that i might have as my nephew does um, a little bit of a learning disability sometimes where I gloss, I can like gloss over the same word that's misspelled or out of place or repeated and I just don't see it. So it gets to be really panic inducing and that's definitely like my least favorite part of it on, on the broader sense though. That's sort of a later, a stage later in the process. Um, but like, as far as like that space between getting it down on the page and sort of refining it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of on a case by case basis. Sometimes it's like, there's a feeling that I, that I get when something has been, when I know something is done, if that makes any sense. Um, yes. So it's like, okay, this is just really barren. There's not, I, I, I get the sense that I actually earned the end of the chapter. That makes any sense. Um, uh, you know, and sometimes, (laughs) This probably isn't the healthiest approach, but some, you know, one of my pet peeves in a book is when somebody's like, it was going to be a long night. They were going to have to wait hours and hours and hours. Seven hours later, something finally happened. It's like, <laughs> can you, and again, like there's something to be said for that brevity, right? There really is. But like, can you use some of that time to maybe do some character development or just, just yes. give me a paragraph of some sort of reflection that sort of again, earns that long amount of time that the characters were waiting or something, you know? Um, and now, now having said that, I don't, I don't go by every minute <laughs> that people have to wait in this book. That's not someone I do, but like, there is the sense that like, Oh, okay. I, I've, I've, I've fleshed this out enough. I've, I've, I've earned, I've earned the honor of moving on <laughs> from this particular yes, yes. section. Yeah. A hundred percent. Has writing about, so like we talked about before, like, a lot of the themes throughout this book, people are going to be like, yep, Joshua Cutchin. Like we, you know, as as they're reading it, there's even certain, like there was nothing I saw coming completely, but throughout like different, you know, you do so good as far as explaining whether it's things that have to do with spiritualisms or or spiritualism or these different little topics that, you know, are very interesting to all of us paranormal enthusiasts. And did it give you a different view on any of these topics? Like, did you ingest this material like by putting it out this way? Did it change your views on any of that? Like we talked with the ecology of souls and you said, one of the things I'm afraid of here is uh, I kind of feel like this is right, my right. end all be all as right. far as my view on the parent. Did this give you a different lens to look at any of these things or. Well, you know, before I answer that, that's part of the reason that I, that I ended up writing them old ways never died is because how do you follow up ecology of souls? And I don't, again, I'm not saying that in the sense that like, Oh, Joshua Cutchin has, you know, crafted a masterpiece. I'm not saying that I'm saying like 
when you say something that for me was as complete and as much the culmination of a lot of years being involved in this topic, like where do you, what do you say after that? Should you say anything after that? Because, you know, I thought about walking away from the whole thing, you know? Um, wow. Yeah. So, you know, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I always try to zig when people think I'm going to zag. So this was my zig. Um, but yeah, um, there is sort of the, um, the oh, there's, I'm trying to remember the right Enneagram number for him, but I can't remember what that particular character archetype is. But um, there's sort of the um, there's someone who there's a character in the book who has who has a lot of knowledge about these things. But even with that sort of knowledge, he re, he retains a sense of agnosticism as as to what these things actually are, right? And um, I've adopted a little bit more of that myself. Like I, I don't necessarily see the same utility I did a year ago as saying, Oh, it's all related to death or, Oh, it might all be us. Like I, 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 I have adopted a little bit more of that character's sense of, you know, well, these are the things that it tends to, that these things tend to do. But as far as what they are, um, you know, they might be a lot of things, they might be unknowable and that's kind of not the point. And I, I think I've adopted a little bit more of that sort of approach and attitude, um, over the course of writing this and, you know, in the, in the months after having since finished it, I kind of see a little bit more of that, um, myself, like there's kind of a, there's kind of an answer towards the end, um, as to what these things might be, um, in the, uh, Again, this is the hard part about talking about. Yeah, the I was going right? to say. Yeah, um, but th- th- they're sort of like you know, a, a character sees a lot of things, and he sort of echoes a sentiment that this other character um, said, um, and that's kind of what I want it to be. Um, is you know, these things are drawing from an imaginal soup, and that's just what they are. I, I kind of want it to be that, but I'm not entirely sure that that's an accurate reading of the phenomenon, but like I've, I've drawn closer to that interpretation over the course of writing this book, probably because that's what this was. It was tapping into yeah. that sort of imaginal store of archetypes and ideas that isn't, you know, it's not dead people. It's everything yeah. that's ever been, you know? <laughs> no, I, I love that. That's, that's really beautiful and makes so much sense because I feel like tapping into that, like you said, uh, archetypal world of the imaginal, it's, People all the time, I think, uh, confuse the idea that imagination is not real. Like the idea, and like you were saying, it's not that these things are as real as the computer or anything, but what is real is the idea that 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 computer is an idea. Like all these things that exist and, you know, become, they are from the world of the imagination. Like they have to be ideas first. And I always love the rap that Alan Moore gives where, you know, the chair is not important. It's the idea of the chair because the physical chair will break down. And if we lose the chair, we can build another one. But if we lose the idea of a chair, that's where we're fucked. Like that's where <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, no, that's... so like, so I think there's something to, and it goes back to kind of even what you were saying with that character that kept waking you up with ideas at night, there is something to those things that are associated with dreams and that hypnagogic hypnagogic. Even mm. when you look at scientific discoveries throughout the years, there's so many that came from dream visions that like, you know, people just wake up and they're like, yep, that's it. I don't know why that's it. I don't know the math to prove it right now, but they can work backwards. And the, 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, divine inspiration for lack of a better word, right? Like that, yeah, that yeah, is I mean, something it, it transcends yeah, it, boundaries, you know, from art to religion to science to math. It's everywhere. 
Well, and, and then where do we draw that line of, of what is and isn't real? I mean, like, okay, so let's say like the nutrients in the food that I ate caused my neurons to fire off in a specific way that caused me to have an idea on the cusp of wakefulness that allowed me to sort of shape that idea and then put it into a word document outline that eventually became a book that got edited, that was revised, that was shared with other people and then took on a life of its own. And that now finally is a physical book. Where's the real and all that? Because the book's real and the words arranged in the certain, certain, you know, positions are real and hopefully these characters like that's 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 what I keep that's what, what I've said since it's been out is like I can't wait to get these characters shared with other people and in other people's heads because they're running out of room in mine. Like I'm ready for them <laughs> to take on I'm ready for them to take on a life of their own. Like where where do we draw the line of real in that whole process? Like is it the nutrients? Is it the idea? Is it the words on the page? I don't know. But yeah, it it started as something. It started as nothing. I mean we can't say what it's become, right? Unless we define what real is and isn't, but like we can all agree it started as nothing. Exactly. And now it's, it seems to, it seems to be something. So yeah, I, you know, there's something I've been realizing more and more. I think my interest in like the paranormal and big mysteries in general comes from spending so much time of staring at a blank paper or a blank screen. Cause when you're staring at something that you have to make something come out of nowhere and this is all retrospective, but like, I'm like, Oh, I'm just sitting with mystery constantly until my pen starts moving and something hopefully pops out. And like, it, it, you know, it's one of those things that like, I realized I'm sitting with these big mysteries more than ever. And I think that is, Oh no, we lost each other. Oh, are you back? No, you're back. You're back. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. You, I don't know you, where you. I cut out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, essentially the idea of artists sitting with mystery is huge to me. Like we sit at this blank canvas or this blank paper. So it makes so much sense that there's this tie to big questions and big mysteries like the paranormal and these things because it gets us more comfortable with sitting with that mystery. I think a lot about there's a lot of parallels with like psychedelics and that whole idea of uh, dying to death and preparing for mm-hmm. these the great unknown. We can look at that in small ways of like every day I sit down to the unknown with like what the fuck am i gonna make today and how how do you handle those little you know those little things and i think these stories and the paranormal is a great way to kind of get comfortable with some of those mysteries and those bigger ideas and 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 what i loved about this this whole process too is is one of my favorite things about english class in high school was like you know our teacher would talk about all these different things that the text meant or might not have meant or that debates had been started and i remember asking like okay well did the author intend any of this And, and my teacher at the time was like doesn't really matter like these things become their own <laughs> frankenstein's monster and yes. take on a life of their own and become things that they n- was never intended and you know um to a degree I, I hope that's what happens with this i hope that there are ideas in this book that i never thought of and to a degree yes. i've i've perceived a little bit of that because at one point i was like um at one point towards the end i was like oh you know what i never really talked about altered states of consciousness and how that can spurn personal change. And I'm like, wait, no, that, I totally did. <laughs> like that's, that's explicitly <laughs> in the, explicitly in the text. And, and like, it wasn't something that I set out to do, but it was still in there. So I hope that there are other things that sort of have a resonance of, of metaphorical truth to them that I never, never thought I was putting in there at all. Yeah. They they definitely do, and I bet I could go through a bunch that I got out, and you'd be like, "Oh, di- didn't plan on that." And See, I, think I love that. I love that. that. That's one of the reasons I think it is important, and I like creators that keep a little bit more vague about this type of stuff because yeah, I, Lynch is my 
favorite example. Like, I love that he mm-hmm. refuses to talk about the meaning behind any of his creations because he knows that limits people's experience of it. Like, he knows that if he right. says what he was thinking, it ruins it for everybody else, let alone the fact that he also knows he doesn't know what he was thinking. Like, it's all subconscious. And that's one of the right. one of the right. things that I think working in fiction might come out more than like a nonfiction material. Like it's more of your subconscious taking the wheel at certain points. I'd imagine. Is that something that you felt throughout the process? Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I mean, cause you know, as much as the people, as much as people might pick up a nonfiction book on the supernatural because they want answers or because they want mystery rather, they really want answers. Like they want some sort of insight, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Totally. And, um, you know, similarly, I, I think that people pick up a fiction book because they they think that they want answers, but they don't. I think that they want more ambiguity. And, um, yeah. you know, I probably put too fine a point on things here and there, um, but I tried to sort of give a certain level of, of vagueness to a lot of these different things. Hello, just popping in to say we had to take a little break here and we pick back up with a random text message I got about horses and veterinarians. So I hope you're enjoying the conversation and now back to it. Bye. I just looked at my phone and I had a text message that just said, Dr. Larry is my horse's leg okay. And I have no clue what to think about that. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm kind of weirded out because I have, yeah, that's a random message for sure <laughs> yeah and I, I feel sorry for that horse i mean geez that's not a leg injury on a horse it's not a good it's usually the end right like yeah not, yeah not much you do after that huh Hist- historically a... it's the end yeah dr Jeez, larry's okay. got a rough day i don't know dr larry dr. does not sound like who i would take my horse to for some reason i don't know <laughs> it's like a dr nick riviera <laughs> i am horse doctor yeah exactly exactly hi dr it, nick you know what actually the simpsons are a great way to ask a question i wanted to ask while we kind of bring this conversation to an end there was this rule they had in the writer's room where and i might kind of poorly quote this or something but you'll get the idea where essentially they're working in the medium of a cartoon so the jokes have to be for a cartoon there's no reason to tell a joke that could work in a regular Mm. you know shot sitcom there should be some extra physical humor or something that utilizes the medium of the cartoon right and and i think it really shows with the way that you look at simpsons jokes and how layered they are they have everything from like the the utmost of physical humor to like the the highest end of kind of social commentary and just really uh absurdity you know and i think leaning into the cartooniness of things always helps them did you the medium to me is always so important and like how much of that idea played into when you were making this, the fact that you're using the written word for fiction this time, like the medium come into your thought process. Right. Um, kind of. Uh, so my biggest concern because I knew it was going to be a book on the longer side, um, that became apparent very quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> was was that it needed to be um structured and paced well um and so a lot of what i took was not necessarily lessons from literature but lessons from cinema i mean I, i've yeah. said this in a couple of other interviews but like i grew up in a very i grew up as a cinemaphile um or cinephile i guess um 
my, my my dad subscribed to the trades like we would get like daily variety or weekly variety <laughs> like so like that's i was so cool yeah it was i it didn't seem odd at the time but now i look back on it I'm like that's kind of an odd odd way to grow up um so like I, I became really interested in like the 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 craft of cinema um and like you know how things are put in a shot and how things um you know how characters show their intentions or beliefs through their actions and you know just different things like that the things that most of us you know i think we all realize it when we watch it but some people who are who know what to look for can actually like put a name to what feels wrong in a scene or whatnot so like to that end i was i was really looking at like the lessons that I'd learned after studying cinema in terms of, of character development and in terms of, of pacing. Um, because so much, I would say that probably a good 50% of quote unquote bad films could probably be solved with good editing and pacing or better (laughs) editing and pacing. So like it became very apparent, like, okay, this book is structured roughly as a four act structure and, you know, um, within probably I'd say 10 pages, I tried to hit all those beats at a quarter of the way through halfway through three quarters of the way through, you know? Um, and, uh, so, so that was definitely a big influence on, on making this thing readable because if it's going to be that big, like you can, you can have something that's large, but as long as there's a sense of progression and there's a sense of like, okay, I'm about this far through something's happened here. This has been a development, you know? really taking those lessons to heart, um, I think kind of ends up being saving grace in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's, there was also, uh, this sort of unspoken rule that I had for myself was that, um, and I only broke this rule, I think in maybe two or three chapters. Um, but the rule was that every chapter had to have something unexplained or spooky or supernatural happen, you know? (laughs) And I think, I think, I think there's maybe, like I said, two or three chapters that don't follow that. Um, but for the most part, like there's something to, to keep you interested and not in like that RL Stein sort of yeah. goosebumps way, but like <laughs> something that has, you know, something that has something, something that it seems to be a development of some sort. So, um, yeah, so those were the, the main lessons that I took. And, and that's something that, you know, I, I still think that them old ways never died is still pretty filmable if you wanted to film. And I think you could film it with a pretty modest budget. If any of my friends who are in Hollywood that I sent books to are listening, Um, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, I mean, I I do think that it would lose, it would lose a degree of, uh, it would lose, it would lose something in that translation too, you know, Um, because you do spend so much time in the protagonist's head. Um, Actually, you know what? Let's, you want to talk spoilers a little bit? Totally. Let's get, so we can say things. So if anybody's listening, who hasn't read it and wants to read it, spoilers from here on out. Um, Yeah. So with, with, uh, you know, it's interesting with a significant portion of the, of the book set during the pandemic. um, It was, like in a film, you'd tell that in like a montage, you could tell that pretty mm-hmm. quickly, but like, you know, with the book, you're kind of like, okay, you've got to kind of spend a couple of chapters and, and, and show what that was like, you know, basically going around in circles in your head. Yes, <laughs> so like, yes. it's a little bit more of a, a little bit of a longer process, but like, there was definitely like, that's something where the, the medium definitely did influence it, where it's like, okay, we've got to spend a couple of chapters. And I think I, I think I got away with three chapters of isolation or so in the pandemic, but, um, 
you know, that was something that like you, ha- you kind of had to feel what it was like. And I don't know, part of this, part of this book, this book has a lot of different purposes, right? But a big part of it was sort of commemorating what that felt like, you know, yeah. because here we are three years later, and I feel like a lot of us have forgotten what that felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I have forgotten to a certain degree what it felt like. And so I wanted to sort of <clears throat> put that down, you know, on paper for me, if for nothing else, but also, you know, what that experience did to a lot of people in the performing arts. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have my books so I could have, you know, other things that I kind of worked on still, but a lot of my friends who were just music musicians and who a lot of my friends who were just musicians and just like taught and played and performed, um, they were just wrecked. Um, absolutely wrecked. Like a sense of like, existential loss of purpose. Um, and I thought that sort of needed to be recorded to a degree. And so the protagonist, Rick, that's, that's a lot of what he ends up experiencing. Yeah. And that isolation is felt like though the, the beginning of it, like you live in it, you can definitely, and I think you're right. That is the type of thing that is more effective in the written word than it is as like a montage in a movie. And it does allow you to sit in it more. And isolation in general is also just such a big part of the paranormal. Like when you look at right. these things that have, like it's usually isolated people that have these experiences mm-hmm. and you don't get that from just reading like a, a quick, uh, de- uh, you know, MUFON description of a case, yeah. or you don't get that from even like Albert Rosales and these guys, that just document mm-hmm. these really weird you don't get that lived in like how isolating those things can be so i thought that was a really appropriate place to start well and it's a good example you know i was talking about like earned earned moments like i can't yeah. be like you know oh the pandemic started and then like that first chapter it'd be like all matters of incident like th- there has to be a time where you earn the boredom and you earn the frustration and you show like what it was like. And so that that's definitely an example of that sort of time that has to be earned rather than just being, wow, this thing really sucked. And then, <laughs> then, you know, he saw goblins or whatever. You, know, you can't, you can't yes, just jump right yes. into that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And I mean, okay. So the other thing, now that we're talking a little bit more specifics, this sp- spans generations. Like it, it goes, you know, from Rick to Jack and like has this really big time frame covered. Was that part of your plan or was that part of the ideas that found you? Like, did it just develop to be that way? I know you mentioned in Barbara's uh, interview that you planned a lot, like once you had the initial thing. And I was wondering yeah. if that was a part of the initial plan. Well, it, it was because like one of my favorite still to this day, my favorite bit of fairy fiction is King of Morning, Queen of Day, um, mm-hmm. which is which follows three generations of, of uh, Irish women and their interactions with the good folk. And I sort of wanted to tell something that did have that generational aspect. But once you open it up to um, generations, then it sort of gives you a platform to talk about generational trauma. Um, which is very much at play here. And it's, you know, a lot of the book is about Rick saying, you know, this stops with me, you know? Yeah. Um, you get the sense, you get the sense that again, this is full spoilers folks. So you get the sense that, um, his, that Rick's father Conrad was also an alcoholic. It's not quite as explicit as Rick's journey, but, um, you know, so you get the impression that even if there wasn't, you know, a goblin blood oath or whatever, (laughs) um, that, uh, that, Rick would have wound up in the same position where he was drinking and everything. And just, you know, um, I, I don't see that in my own trauma. Um, you know, my, 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 my parents are, you know, completely normal quote unquote drinkers. Um, 
you know, they, they, they enjoy, they enjoy having a drink, but they don't have a problem like I developed. So that's not always the case, but that's something that I noticed in recovery um, is that so many of these people who are dealing with these issues of addiction of different stripes um, are dealing with something that is, is generational. And it's because of these traumas that were inflicted on them. My, my trauma doesn't stem from my parents. It just, it, it, it uh, stems from some other extended family members. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a big part of it. Again, you can see why like this feels so vulnerable <laughs> talking yes, about was, this book. Like, yeah. Uh, I had written down a minute ago when you were talking about where do you go after ecology of souls? And it makes so much sense that you went inward. Like you did what everyone <sighs> does. You go outward till you can't go outward anymore. And then you have to go inward. Right. That's and, like, interesting. Yeah. In a weird way, this book feels like the most personal thing I've ever read from you or not a weird oh, way. Is, I guess yeah. it makes sense that it is, but, and it's not that again, I, I think it's a good time to just to uh, make the statement that it's not that these characters are you like you can tell <laughs> right. like I I've I've been really into listening to old Charles Schultz interviews the creator of peanuts and he gets mm-hmm. so pissed off when people are like well they're all just different aspects of you right like you're part Lucy and part, he's like no no not like like th- yes there's parts of me and all the characters but they are not like analogs to me you know but that was like, that was the worst part of sharing this with 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 family is that they're like, Oh, this is so-and-so and this is you. And I'm like, no, just like there, there's obviously <laughs> starting points for this. I mean, like up yeah. there, it's like Barbara said to me at one point, she said, like, you know, Rick is you through, um, through a glass darkly. Um, yeah, and, and it really is beautiful. like, there, there's, there's a lot of things that about me that wound up in, in Rick, but like Rick's kind of dialed up to 11 <laughs> on all of his problems. And, you know, so yeah, it's, there's inspiration, but it's, it's not, you know, a direct lift over from yeah. someone else. Yeah. Um, no. And the, okay. So we're almost at an hour and a half here. So I want to start why well, I want to respect somewhat of your time here, Josh, I could talk to you for another two hours easily <laughs> about all of this, but to avoid giving too much away mm-hmm. and to kind of start an ending point, I want to talk about the end of the book a little bit and just that, the last line of the book is one of my favorite things like, and Oh really? Okay. Okay. It's one of those things where I feel like books that had like the endings of books, like the last line can really suck sometimes and like, yeah, kind of, yeah. like can, yeah. can kind of leave you like, like wanting or, but the last line and I, you know, I don't, we don't have to quote it directly, but it, it has to do with the power of belief. And it's something that has always mm. been in a fictional device that I've loved from, nightmare on elm street to a million other examples that like the belief is the power and i think Mm -hmm. you summed up the book so beautifully in the way that you tied it up with that that little statement on how powerful belief is and did this book change your view on belief at all or was that something that you felt that you were just expressing in a new way um it it, it kind of express what I'd suspected in in a new way. I, I, I think it's so interesting um, how much we talk about the role that belief plays in paranormal encounters, but like a lot of us don't internalize that. Um, And what I mean by we don't internalize how we can apply that to our day to day situation. Um, You know, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who says that you can sort of like, positive think your way out of depression having been in some of those spaces myself um because even the act of positive thinking in those spaces is an insurmountable task but i do think that um 
a healthy perspective when you're not in that state can can sort of keep the wolf from the door for a little bit longer. Yes. Um, and it can, uh, it can, it can, again, it's all about re-enchanting, right? It's all about re-enchanting your day-to-day life. And it ties into perspective. It ties into gratitude, you know? I mean, so <laughs> there was something that I mentioned one time, you know, just, uh, in, in one of my meetings on recovery, people were talking about how rough a time they were having. And, you know, my recovery journey has been, very um smooth and uneventful i'm very grateful for that but like you know somebody was talking about you know um being in a you know uh traffic fender bender and i said uh i said yeah but did you have diarrhea (laughs) and they said (laughs) no and i said but that's like but that's that's such an example of like you know not i mean maybe it's a pessimistic thing of like no matter how bad it is it can always get worse but also like just be grateful for those times when things are bad and you don't have diarrhea on top of it. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's, it sounds so 100%. silly, but like how much worse would all that be? You know? So, and you can do that with a lot of different things. Now I'm not the person who's so going to come up to you after your mom dies and say, but do you have diarrhea? Yeah. Like there, there are times to grieve and to acknowledge that, but like Absolutely. for a lot of the super, for a lot of this you know, stuff that is relatively superficial, that doesn't involve health or incredible losses to your finances. Like, you know, like, you know, I was talking to you about how, what a rough week I had last week. Well, I didn't have diarrhea last week, too. So, like, <laughs> dude, no. it's so true. I've been OK. Uh, as we've talked before, you know, I'm a huge Ram Dass fan. And one of my mm-hmm. favorite raps that he does is it's all perfect. And this idea that everything that's happening from, you know, the most biggest world atrocity you've ever thought of to the week that you described to me you had last week. It's all perfect because it all had to happen because this is all essentially preordained and when you think about what it took for us to be sitting and talking here right now it's all perfect and it it took every fuck up every heartbreak every tragedy and everything else to make a joshua kutchin and a todd purse to sit here and talk and when you look at the world through that lens it doesn't justify you know people a lot of times like well it justifies all this horrible blah 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 and i think that's a very um, uh, kind of the wrong view to take on the idea. The idea is to sit with the the fact that we're all this combination of good and bad and everything in between. And that's what makes us kind of special. And that's what's like really, and I think people, it's funny because it also makes me think of this uh, idea of free will that people like Eric Wargo talk about. And there's this beautiful quote um, from a conversation between Eric Wargo and the ungoogable Michelangelo about free will and the idea. So Eric Wargo's whole thing is that, you know, the present can impact the past and the future mm-hmm. and it's not as linear. So people are like, what's that say about free will? And there's this quote that the ungoogable Michelangelo said where he thinks that free will is not the ability to alter events, but it's the ability to alter how we feel about or frame the events. And I think that mm. is so, even if it's not the the base truth, that is practical. You can imply it's, it's that. Powerful. And, uh, yeah. It's powerful, yeah. It's powerful, and you can apply it to everything we were just talking about because it is all about that framing and all about that self. We have this voice that talks to us in our head, right? And we, call, we, we frame, everything's a story. We're the main character in this little plot that's happening. So why not orient that plot to good things why not orient those and it's not like you said you can think yourself out of depression you can think it's not that like you know these things are are cheer-alls right and a lot of this stuff is modern privilege almost uh mitch horowitz talks about this because he's a big new thought proponent and he's like 
New Thought wasn't a thing back in the day because if your harvest didn't come up and your family dies, you can't tell yeah. those people to think about it and it's going to be okay. Yeah. New Thought yeah. came with the stock market when money could just appear in your account out of nowhere. And like it came from this cultural and societal privilege that we have, but we're in that now. So let's use it. Like let's sit here and try and orient our thoughts to a positive outcome. And I think that right. that that's the thing like is is taking these pieces and using them practically in our life and I love that the access point can be a bunch of different places. Well, I mean <laughs> and and you can have gratitude while still acknowledging that there's room for improvement too. Like people yes. will hear that and be like, "Oh, so you're saying that I shouldn't complain about societal ills." And no, that's not the case at all, but like it is worth finding some perspective on how much better you know, a lot of our lives have become in the past several centuries while still totally. saying, but there's still more work to be done. It can always be done better. And that's sort of the hopeful, the hopeful stance that a lot of our, our fiction has not taken. <laughs> you know that's what I right. mean? That's right. No, you um, got it. You just nailed it. 100%. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've had certain things happen in certain relationships in the past. Um, some things that uh, were, replicated to an uncanny degree in, in my, you know, current relationship with my wife. And, um, I didn't handle those situations in those previous relationships as well as I could. And I'm not saying that those things happen for me. Um, but I am saying that I was able to learn from that and they only make sense now after being shown after being put in a situation and doing not the wrong thing even, but like yeah. after being put in a situation and, making some mistakes, I was able to sort of adjust and pivot and take those lessons with me into, you know, 100%. the last, most lasting relationship of my life, you know? Totally. Um, and I, I, yeah. And I know it's just, this is, you know, the idea of gratitude in 2023 is a hard pill for a lot of us to swallow for very good reasons, you know? Um, and I, I totally get that, but at the same time, um, it can at least, um, provide a, a little a little bit of sunshine in your day a hundred percent and two things that makes me think of is one i think one of the cool things about or one of the interesting things about this conversation and having that attitude of gratitude and hope it's almost like an act of rebellion these days. It's almost like more <laughs> yeah, controversial yeah. to talk this way than it is to just be all doom and gloom, right? Like it's like yeah. we defaulted to this very pessimistic, sarcastic thing as a as a narrative, as a culture, where there's so much more. And that's what I love about well, conversations yeah. like this. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, th I think we talked about this last time too, but like, you know, the it's like with the uh it's like with the whole deconstruction of the superhero thing. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not sure where you go after the Watchmen. Like you can push <laughs> it a little bit further into the boys, which I really enjoy. Um, you know, having read some of those graphic novels and also seeing Amazon's uh, adaptation of it, you can push it, yeah. you can push it a little bit further into there, but I'm not sure if there's any way to go except to, reset back to optimism because optimism is the new deconstruction of the superhero. Like, yes. Uh, you know. It's all the, the one theme I've seen from talking to a whole bunch of different creators and weird thinkers and stuff through this podcast. And just the, uh, my luck in general is that there it's all about 
destruction and creation and destruction and creation. It builds, it's ebbs and flows. And, you know, like James Brown said, you got to get up to get down. Like it's that you can't, (laughs) you have to have those ebbs and flows. And the thing that's more interesting to me than ever right now with that big conversation, as far as like the deconstruction and the reconstruction is it almost has bypassed some of the artwork itself like it's almost more down to the creators like when i think of someone like david lynch for example he's putting some of the darkest work out there but if you listen to him talk he is the most positive happy like he 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 talks like a child that just discovered his first coca-cola and like this beauty (laughs) and this like talk about a dude that sees the world as a magical place and that we're all connected Mm -hmm. and beautiful humans and that's what i think is really interesting is that these people it's like the creators that get it live a whole artistic life themselves and their message goes way beyond their work. And that's where I think people really resonate. And what's interesting to me these days is the opportunities for those people has changed. Like, I don't know how many more David Lynch's we're going to get in the world that can operate at his level, you know, like his story of where he had that cultural influence. But I think that bifurcation allows for like a bunch more David Lynch's to operate on smaller levels and have greater change. It's like nature tends towards complexity and our culture is just getting more complex and complex and complex. Right. I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, again a good or a bad thing, but I feel like it's what's happening. And what's really cool is there's more access points to understand those big ideas through the, the artists these days, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Um, and you know, there's, but w- while still retaining that sense of, of detachment to allow the work to sort of stand on its own, you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Dude. No, I think this is, this has been a super fun conversation and like, I don't know if there's anything else you want to put out there or you want to say about the book. We're, we're at an hour and a half here and I don't want to keep you all morning. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Uh, Them old ways never died available on Amazon. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Amazon's back end for self-publishing is really robust and user friendly. That's why I ended up using it. Um, but also uh, copies are obtainable from me uh, for um, uh, with uh, signed copies rather are obtainable from me. Just visit joshuacutchen.com and uh, we'll line something up. Send me an email and, and we'll get something sent out to you. Um, and uh, yeah, just participate in this, this world I've created because like I said, these characters are getting crowded in my head. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. The books are beautiful, by the way, the physical copy came that you sent and it is just gorgeous. Like I, it's so like, thank you. Yeah, no, uh, Miguel did a great job with the cover and the artwork's beautiful. And yeah, I, it's been so nice. I uh, got, reread the last chapter and the epilogue in the physical book before the conversation this morning. And it was so nice to like hold it. And I forget how <laughs> physical books yeah. are so much just, it's just my thing. Like I, I love holding things like that. Well, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, um, there, there are these two moments of, um, these two very meta moments that, uh, don't have the same impact if you're reading it on an ebook, uh, where where it becomes as we alluded to earlier, where so the um, the woman in white has a perfect knowledge of of what's going on, and those two meta moments I think hit a little bit different when you're holding a physical book. And it really you know, does, the, yeah, um, dude, this, yeah, yeah. That last chapter is some, and like again, it's so 
that last chapter is really special. Like the whole ending and like the whole lady and what I have uh, several things underlined that I've reread a few times now. <laughs> well, thank and, you. Well, yeah, you know, that, that, that was, that was part of the decision. Um, and the epilogue serves a little bit of this purpose too, but like I, I, I wanted a couple of, I had a couple of goals and I know we're about to say <laughs> goodbye and I'm going off no, on this digression. Keep going, but like, you're good. I can't tell you how many times I've been so excited to pick up a book and I pick it up and I turn to the back and it looks interesting. And it says, you know, book one of the dark bringer saga or something. And I'm like, I don't really know if I want to commit to this. So like, this is a standalone book with a definitive ending with a positive ending and a positive message. And those were three things that I really wanted to make sure happen. And Um, they're all there. And that's why I think it's important. Like I was saying for you to throw your hat in that fiction verse, because the positivity comes through in something that gets pretty dark for a while, you know, like it's it's not all love and rainbows and uh, yeah, definitely has that darker side of the paranormal in there, which is very important. And like, I, yeah, I, and even the whole theme, like the addiction theme throughout and it's, uh, apropos to our wrap-up conversation how important that dark night of the soul is like everybody i know of that like went through the addiction and recovery process they would never give up that worst point in their lives never in a million years never in a million years yeah the book puts that in a really um uh solid way for somebody like me who's never gone through that addiction process and in a way that i hadn't really processed it before so that's interesting and i think uh, useful for that alone if nothing else. <laughs> well thank you so much yeah um i uh it it does get dark and um but you know I, at the end of the day i really hope that this is sort of uh a spreader of hope so, yes yeah, yeah absolutely wonderful well i'll put links to everything in here if there's anything else you want people to find i know you have the anomicon uh That'll be mm-hmm. this weekend, and this will come out the weekend afterwards. But you can see that forever on YouTube, right? Yes, yeah. So, so this upcoming weekend, <laughs> this upcoming weekend, I am in Atlanta at Dragon Con. Um, this is oh, Labor Day weekend, weekend, and yeah, and that's going on simultaneously with Anomicon. And then I will be at Strange Realities 2023 in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, November third through fourth. And then there is another event that is being set up in December that I'll be prepared to make some announcements about uh, in a little bit. Uh, it's going to be big and splashy, I think. So, yeah. Very exciting. Well, thank you again for taking the time and thank you for sending me the book. And yeah, thank you for writing it. It was a beautiful <laughs> experience to, to work through it here. Thanks so much, Todd. I appreciate it. No problem, Josh. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right. Take, take care. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,